Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Color of Change's award-winning Tell Black Stories podcast. I'm Jade Magnus Obanaki. I'm a senior director of the campaigns team at Color of Change, and we're back with another episode of Tell Black Stories. Today, we're joined by a very special guest, Academy Award-winning director Barry Jenkins. Barry is one of the most influential directors in Hollywood and is best known for his powerful and authentic portrayals of the Black experience, including Best Picture winner Moonlight, uh, and probably my favorite movie I've ever seen, um, and If Beale Street Could Talk. His latest project, The Underground Railroad, premiered last Friday, May 14th, on Amazon Prime. Based on Colson Whitehead's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, the series chronicles Cora Randall's fight for freedom in the antebellum South. After escaping a Georgia plantation for the rumored Underground Railroad, Cora discovers no mere metaphor, but an actual railroad full of engineers and conductors and a secret network of tracks and tunnels beneath the Southern soil. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Barry, and for bringing this remarkable story to our screens. Um, you've directed some of the most powerful shows and movies depicting the Black experience. What was it about the Underground Railroad story that made you really want to bring it to screen? Um, thank you for having me, and thank you for that lovely introduction, by the way. Um, it's always nice to meet a moonlight stand um, out in the wilderness. Um, um, you know, when I first heard the words Underground Railroad as a child, I imagined uh, Black folks on trains um, underground. Even imagine is not the right word. I saw Black folks uh, on trains underground. I saw us building those trains underground. My granddad was a longshoreman, and I would watch him. You know, I grew up in Miami. I watch him put on his hard hat and his steel toe boots and his uh, tool belt and go off to work down at the port. Um, and I thought that men like him, that men like Nene had built the Underground Railroad. And it filled me with such a, such a sense of, uh, of pride. Because um, mm-hmm. when you're a child, I was maybe four or five years old, you know, you don't place any limitations on anything. The world hasn't taught you to place limitations on anything. And so just hearing the words out loud, not even imagined, uh, that's what I saw. And so when I heard that Colson had written this book, and I heard of the literary conceit of making the railroad an actualized thing, I realized that this was something I could pair my voice with in an effort to use my voice, to use language, as Miss Toni Morrison says, to honor my ancestors. Oh, I absolutely love that. Um, uh, Barry, it seems that you're sort of an expert in bringing a source material in the form of a play like Moonlight was, um, a book like the Underground Rail- Railroad um, into like visual form. What was that collaboration process uh, like for you this time uh, with the Underground Railroad with you and Whitehead? Obviously, you know, you, you have the source material, but what was it like actually bringing that to life? Yeah, it was really cool. You know, Colson was a uh, was a great ally, I would say, um, for this process. By which I mean, he didn't want to be directly involved, uh, but he wanted to be a resource. He was actually off writing another book that won a Pulitzer Prize, two time Pulitzer Prize award winning author Colson Whitehead, uh, his novel The Nickel Boys. And so, he uh, he said, you know, the novel is the novel, and the show will be the show. If you need me, check in. But otherwise, you know, do your thing. Um, and so we formed a writers' room. And it was with that group um, that much of the um, the extrapolation, the transformation, the transmutation took place. Um, a woman named Jackie Hoyt, who I'd uh, staffed in the leftover season two writers room with, uh, a homegirl of mine from San Francisco who had graduated from the NYU playwriting program of an MFA, this woman named Allison Davis, the fantabulous Allison Davis, 
uh, Jihan Crowther, um, a young woman from Liberia um, who had some really interesting perspectives on CORE's journey. Um, and then Adrian Rush, uh, an old friend of mine from my film school who's from the South, uh, William Faulkner Stan, uh, and this guy Nathan C. Parker, who's a sci-fi writer, um, son of Alan Parker, the famous uh, British director who just passed. And so the group of us got together and that's a very disparate group, many different perspectives. And I thought that was a very interesting way. You know, when you make a feature film, you're kind of running around in the dark by yourself. But in this case, I didn't want to do this by myself, yeah. um, even in the process of, of taking the book apart. Um, and it was a wonderful group. And you'd be surprised at who contributed what um, in the room. You know, Alison Davis is, you know, that's my homegirl. And I'd never imagined that she would dig into the Tennessee universe the way she did. Um, she was the one who pitched that, you know, I think this man is going home to say goodbye to his father, to bury him. And I was like, yo, that's kind of <laughs> deep uh, because it wasn't in the book. Yeah, can I ask, in the writer's room, it's like such a, uh, as you said, a disparate group of people. What were you guys listening to? Did you guys have like a playlist, a soundtrack? You know, uh, it's funny. We, we did not have a playlist or a soundtrack. You know, I've heard of writer's rooms that, that kind of create a vibe like that. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we had eight weeks to do this because we did the writer's room between the award season for Moonlight and pre-production to go make Beale Street. That's when we did the writer's room. And, you know, for example, I was in The Leftovers for 20 weeks, which is about four months, five months, and I did nothing. Um, and in this case, in eight weeks, we basically broke this book twice uh, and we pitched it to the studio twice. So it was a lot. I mean, there wasn't much vibe or downtime and we were just all <laughs> digging in. And, and you know, what was lovely though, it was like, we were all trying to see, where do I see myself um, in this book? And it was really amazing the places that everybody found out um, or the places people found themselves in, in the narrative. Yeah. Can I ask, what is your sort of like creative process like? You know, obviously there's so many different people and they have different things. You know, you hear about athletes who like go on vegan diets the week before a big game. What is that process like for Barry Jenkins? Uh, for me, it's just about interrogation. You know, I just want to question uh, everything, you know, just question everything. You know, why is this this way? How can this be that way? Um, I think if you go through this process of asking questions and then not even answering them definitively, but the journey of working towards the answer always reveals these really beautiful and amazing things. Um, in this writer's room, definitely functioned that way. And then once we got into the field and we were making the show, it was just about question after question after question, um, which I think yields, you know, because when you're trying to find an answer, you're yearning for something. And I always think that this yearning is kind of like the source of good drama, the source of good storytelling, the source of good art. Um, and here I have this universe of black folks, you know, living in a time um, that is um, horrible in many ways. And yet they are constantly yearning for so many different things. And I think this idea of us questioning, it kind of dovetailed with the yearning that I felt was in the book amongst all the characters. I love the emotion and action of yearning being sort of a propeller um, forward for all of you. I think particularly I've read uh, the Underground Railroad book and it's not the sort of book that ties everything up in a neat bow. You know, there are a lot of inferences you could make, a lot of, you know, uh, metaphors. Um, and I love the idea of, you know, this complex feeling of yearning, um, really moving the story forward. Uh, Barry, your production company, Pastel, produced this project. How important was it for you to ensure that Black people were involved, not just on the screen, but behind the scenes as well, particularly for a story that's as emotionally evocative as one about enslaved people? 
It was super important. And it's interesting because behind the scenes implies a couple of different things. It's like, oh, the cinematographer or the producers and things like that. Um, but for us, it was like literally on the ground and on the set. Um, you know, our therapist uh, was was black. We had to make sure, uh, particularly because the, primarily the majority of our cast are black and we wanted them to be able to look at someone, you know, who they understood on site, on site, you know, understood the things they were dealing with, um, you know, kind of like a bit more levity, but our hair department had to be black, had to be black. There was just no, no getting around it, uh, especially because hair becomes sort of like a thematic, sort of like a talking point early in the show. Um, and then the same way there are these uh, these men, primarily white men, who preserve all these uniforms of the, the Confederacy and the Union, and they reenact these battles at Gettysburg, you know, there are Black folks all throughout the South who are also preserving the traditions of our ancestors. Um, and those folks, you know, whether it was, you know, sourcing the costumes or whether it was the, the intricacies of mid, midwifery or whether it was the, the songs that people are singing, the hymns and the dancing, um, you know, we really empowered those people to kind of come in and take over um, our sets uh, to make sure that there was this, this essence, this sort of, I don't know, this energy of blackness that was very clearly pervading um, throughout the set. Um, not because it was important for everyone to know exactly the point of view the story was being told from. I kind of thought that was that was obvious, but more as an individual, if you looked left or you looked right, you felt like you were in your own space. Mm. You know, there's been a sort of like cyclical conversation on social media and I think in Black space all over the country uh, most recently around Black films about enslaved people. Um, for some reason, there are people who believe that like every movie or TV show that comes out about Black people is about, you know, Black trauma. We know that's like definitely not true. Um, but obviously a story about enslaved people in the Underground Railroad and the horrors of slavery is going to be something that is quite um, heavy and challenging to deal with, particularly as a descendant of, in, of enslaved people. Um, how did you navigate dealing with such challenging material without veering into what people may call trauma porn? Yeah, I mean, one, the, the term trauma porn, uh, when we started this process back in 2016, and it wasn't as on the tips of everyone's tongues uh, the way it is now. Um, and so it wasn't a word necessarily that was uh, uh, wrangling around or jangling around in my head. Um, but the, the, the secular uh, conversation you're talking about or the ever-present conversation you're talking about, um, I knew that this project was destined to find itself in the center of that conversation. Um, and I think part of that is legitimate. You know, I think um, folks are used to receiving these images and not having these images be dealt with in the way that either they see fit um, or in the way that the images demand to be dealt with, with the responsibility and the and the respect and and to be brutally honest uh from the perspective um i do think in the last four or five ten years you know that has shifted for sure and there have been folks throughout the years you know whether it's you know the the way mr mr haley's roots was dealt with or the way gordon parks dealt with solomon northrop's memoir when he made it uh back in the 80s um and yet these images uh, have a tendency to be extremely loud extremely loud um, and because of their lack, you know, I love the way you teed the question up, you know, I do think these images aren't as present, aren't as, um, aren't as persistent, you know, as they seem, but because they are so loud, 
um, and especially they're even louder uh, because of their absence. Um, yeah, they do have a way of being extremely triggering. Um, I think the sensitivity that folks uh, see have around these images is justified. Now, because of that, even four years ago, five years ago, when we started this process, I already knew, not that I have to make things so that it can fit into this conversation in a positive way, um, but more inside the conversation, inside the question, I felt like there was a legitimate concern. And so here I am on set, and I've decided this image needs to exist, partly uh, because it serves as the catalyst for my character, um, but also to speak truth to the ordeal that my ancestors overcame. And I think that's important because I see my ancestors as overcoming these, these, these ordeals and not succumbing to them. And yet I know I'm creating these images. And so this conversation, it is always reminding me, okay, you're going to do this. Why are you doing it? How are you doing it? And in doing it, what are you actually revealing to the viewer? And also what are you putting both the cast and the crew through and what are you putting the audience through? And so I think knowing that conversation was out there, I think being made aware, having a heightened sensitivity because of the conversation, I do think it affected the way we dealt with and engaged with these images. Case in point, you know, only one and a half of these episodes takes place on the plantation. And as far as the violence goes, there's a difference between showing and telling. In a book on the page, everything's being told and nothing's being shown. So you can digest that much more easily. You know, cinema or television, it's all about showing. And at the beginning of the show, at the opening and the pilot, we do show these acts of brutality, but then as the story goes on, someone tells, and then we show the reaction. We don't show the event. I made a conscious choice to do that. Um, and, uh, and that wasn't to placate the conversation, but it's because I'm out here, man, and, uh, and I'm listening. You know, I so appreciate that, you know, this, this concern that people have, you have like obviously thought deeply and intentionally about it and also not written off people. You know, it's like when I hear people say that every, every black film or TV show is about trauma porn, I'm like, oh my God, have you seen Insecure? Have you seen Grownish? You know, there are just so many, there's so many different angles, but people are rightfully, as you said, um, rightfully concerned about the, the images and portrayals of their ancestors. Sort of a spinoff of that question. So often we talk about representation, representation matters. Um, uh, when I saw Moonlight, you know, the first half was the first time I had ever really seen a household like I grew up in represented on screen. Um, what does real Black representation look like and feel like to you? Oh, you know, I think it's kind of like um, they say, you know it when you see it. Um, you know, I think you know it when you see it. I don't think there's a formula to creating uh, real Black representation or actualized Black representation because, you know, we can't get inside someone's mind and interrogate why they're doing something. Um, you know, is it for profit? You know, is it for clout? You know, or is it for expression? Is it for art? You know, it's kind of hard to really know what anyone's um, impetus is behind creating something, but you kind of know it when you feel it. Um, and so I think it's important to allow people to do what they do and then engage the work um, and then make your judgment because man, it's crazy. We could create a formula. This is the formula for actual black representation. And then it's unfortunate, but you know, someone might come in and then try to manipulate that, you know, for gain or for clout. And I put myself in that same category. You know, it's why I say people coming after me when they saw that, that trailer, um, but I understood where it came from. You know, it wasn't about me, you know, in a way it's 
kind of bigger than me. Um, and the story I'm telling in this case is even more important than me. It's certainly bigger than me. Um, and so I, I can't say what what uh, what actual black representation is, but I do feel like you know it when you see it, man. You know it when you see it. When was the first time you saw yourself or your family or your neighborhood represented on screen? And what film or TV show was that? You know, it's interesting. It, it was twofold. Uh, one was one that I didn't see myself in until I saw it, which was uh, Spike Lee's School Days. Um, there was just something, just because of where I grew up, there was just something about seeing a college filled with nothing but young Black folks who were dope and and actually got into arguments and shit. I was like, yo, this is crazy. At that, at that point, the idea of going to college wasn't even something I had considered. Um, and then the other one was a combination of Men's Society and, uh, and Boys in the Hood. Uh, those two films, uh, I felt like someone I'd gone to high school with had made those movies. Um, not about Miami because those, South Central is a much different place, but, uh, but, but those two films, I was like, oh, I didn't realize you could make a movie about that. And by that, I meant, I didn't realize you could make a movie about us um, in that way. And so I'd say those three. All total classics. Um, you know, something else that I feel like Moonlight did for the first time was really depict Black Miami in a way. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of times people just think Miami is like South Beach and Wet Willies and all mm -hmm. of these things, mm -hmm. but Miami is like super Black and there's, you know, such a huge, uh, diasporic community there. Um, what was it like bringing Miami to the big screen? And did you feel so much pressure to like make sure it was quote unquote right? Uh, I did feel pressure, man, especially going back because um, it had been a while since since I had been back, certainly since I had been back to the spots that we were making the film in. And I kind of had to had to prove myself to the neighborhood uh, once again. Are you sure you're from here? You don't sound like you're from here. Just, you know, <laughs> give it a couple of weeks, and I'll, I'll sound like I'm from here again. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a it was a lot of pressure um, for for so many different reasons. You know, one, I wanted to get this kid's story right. You know, Terrell's a very private person, and I knew what this would mean uh, for him, and so I wanted to get his story right um, as well. You know, I want to sidestep a second. There, I, you know, I've never thought about this, but there must be other cinematic depictions of, of urban Miami, I'm using air quotes now, um, of Liberty City, of Black Miami. And I realize I'm actually not familiar with them. Um, you got a, a large listenership. Um, if anybody wants to wants to hit me, you know, to early Black Miami cinema, please, please um, send, send those recommendations my way. I mean, there was a huge soul scene uh, in Miami. Um, you know, Betty Wright was like, just like the goddess. And you know, this uh, Deep City Records label, um, they were kind of like Motown of, I mean, Motown kind of is the South. This is like Motown, deep, deep, deep South, you know, Motown at the bottom. So somebody had to make something, man. We got we got to check on that. Uh, color change listeners, please educate me, please. Uh, Cause there's gotta be some <laughs> other movies that were made down there. But, but going back home to make Moonlight, man, it was, you know, part of it was really beautiful cause we were totally free. I was talking to somebody about this the other day like oh what's it like what's, what's the pressure like coming off a of moonlight and then going to make this this real massive thing and i was like if you were there when we made moonlight and you understood how just bare bones how just how just bare knuckle how just like just like out there you know that whole process was you'd understand that the, the compare something to that doesn't really make any sense because it was just so it was like, I got $2 in my pocket, you know, and a Happy Meal costs $3.50. You know, I got to get this other $1.50. 
And you got to do whatever it takes. You know, you got to just go hustle, knock on doors. That was what going back to my way to make that movie was like. And the really beautiful thing about it was there were so many people who worked on that film that are still down there now that are making their films. You know, this woman, Keisha Witherspoon, won uh, the best short film at the Berlin Alley last year before everything shut down because of COVID. Um, making, she was our location manager um, and one of our location scouts. She helped with all our local casting. And now she's telling her story. She's got this really beautiful feature film she's going to make. And I think being in the community, making the film, it just demystified so many things. Um, you know, whether five people saw it or or 5,000 or 500,000 at this point, um, the process of making it was just so beautiful and pure. Um, it felt like instead of coming into the community and invading it to tell a story, we came back and made ourselves a part of the community. Um, yeah, it was a really beautiful process. It was like a film incubator, it sounds like right there where people could just sort of like, you know, pay attention just like they would to any other job or, you know, employer located in the community. Um, you mentioned Keisha Witherspoon um, as being someone who was a, a location scout for you who ends up you know, making a beautiful film and becoming a, a filmmaker. What sort of work do you think, you know, is really needed to ensure that Black artists and producers and creatives sort of have the opportunities that they need to create um, authentic work in the entertainment industry? Yeah, and this this is going to be a, a, a bit of a, a, a another sidestep because I don't know if there's anything you can do, but just find a way to make shit, you know, because I got to say, we didn't do anything to, to, to help or, or create Keisha or create a foundation for Keisha to stand on. You know, her and Jason and, and all those folks down there, they were already, they were just finding a way to do shit. Um, and, and thankfully they were because they had created, if anything, they created a foundation that we could step into um, to, to, to make our little film. And, and I think what, what I love about what they're doing down there is everybody's working together. You know what I'm saying? You got to click up and click up and click up. That's why every time I do these interviews, I'm so proud to say my cinematographer, my editor, you know, my uh, my producers, you know, these are all kids I went to film school with. This episode of the show, the, the three of these episodes were written by, or two of them were written by these these these, these women I knew growing up in, in San Francisco and then at my film school in Florida State, you know, and there's no reason why they can't do what I do or what people in this industry do. And so I love that, you know, in a place down at, we call it the bottom, you know what I'm saying? Keisha and, and Jason and everybody at Borsch and all those folks, you know, they're, they're doing their thing and, and they were going to do it whether we went down there to make Moonlight or not. Um, and so I think that the, the biggest thing is it's not about breaking into the industry. It's about creating very authentically in the place that you are, which I always let to borrow from Spike and, uh, and Malcolm X by any means necessary. Uh, Barry, it sounds like what you're saying is that these people are just so committed and compelled by their craft that, you know, they're going to make what they need to make regardless. Uh, but by, their, by their craft, but also too, if you spend any time uh, with Keisha and those folks, they love Miami, you mm. know, to them, to them, Miami is, you know what I'm saying? It's, 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 it's the, it's the, it's the, it's Mecca, you know, it's, 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 it's the place, it's the Mayan empire, you know, there's something so special about that place you know to them moonlight is not an aberration it's like of course there's something so special about this place you come here with an authentic story tell it authentically and this place will shine um, i think there's many places like that all over this country all over the world it's just the industries themselves 
are so isolated, so dislocated from those places. We have to get it in our head that we're dislocated from those places. Like, no, 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 no. Those places are dislocated. Mm. You know what I mean? That place is over there and we are here um, and we're going to do our thing. And, and if I, I love it. This is turning into just a shout out, you know, for all these kids down in Miami who are just telling these amazing, amazing stories. Um, because, yeah, they 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 are the truth, you know, and the rest of us were just playing catch up. No, we love the shout out. <laughs> you know, we we definitely want uh, this to be a space where black creatives and, and actors and producers and writers can be uplifted. And I will definitely, after this interview, be looking up Keisha and trying to watch her film. Um, um, uh, Moonlight and the Underground Railroad, you, you are both Southern stories. What is it specifically about the South that just captures the American imagination and it's you know constantly replicated over and over again um, um, in movies and television and books in a way that you know the Midwest or I'm from LA the West Coast is just is not really replicated. Yeah, you know if 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 you wanna if you wanna understand um, this country, you have to go to the roots, um, and there is no doubt that there's blood in the soil of the American South, and at some point we have to. We have to dig into that soil and really excavate, you know, what's in it, you know, so that we can get a better picture of us. I'm talking about Black folks now. I'm talking about of America, um, and so I think there, there is a very, very organic uh, reason, and this, and this is where I grew up. So it's why I keep kind of working my way, working my way back there, and working my way back in time. It seems over the course of these projects. There's something I'm, I'm obsessed with right now that predates the American, uh, the, the Underground Railroad. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't, I, I, I can't go, I can't go to this place. I just can't, I just can't, but, but it's, it's happening and I can see it happening and I, I'm, I'm powerless to stop it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's just something in the soil. And, and I do think, you know, there's this line, you know, in, in the book where they get on the train and the guy says, you know, if you want to see the true face of America, just look out, just look out the window, you know, as you, as you ride through the tunnels, I'm butchering the quote, but if you look out of a train driving through rock, you know, and the, and at any point, all you're going to see is black, you know, you are going to see blackness, uh, which is the true face um, of America. And so I do think these stories set in the South, you know, in, in so much as they are very unique and singular and about a very particular experience, they kind of are about the totality um, of America. Um, and, and there's a reckoning, you know, that has been steadily and steadily and steadily building. And I think it's why so many of these stories are coming back to the South. Thank you so much, Barry. Last question. Um, you said that telling stories like these is a way to honor your ancestors. What does it look like to honor your ancestors through film um, and through, you know, sort of your creativity? What does that look like and feel like for you? Yeah, it's... Um, you know, it's one of it's it's a function of 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 the, the time that my ancestors lived in, you know, and the the control or lack thereof they had over their means of expression, um, by which I mean my ancestors were discouraged from recording themselves, um, and it predates the technology, the means to record them um, in absence of their own expression. You know, there are no photographs uh, of them, and paintings of them uh, were discouraged. It's why when I put out this piece, uh, The Gaze, I mentioned Carrie James Marshall series uh, personifying these ancestors from our history for whom we have no pictorial record. 
um, including the artist Scipio Moorhead, who painted the 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 portrait we know, we've come to know of the poet Phyllis Wheatley. Um, and so, for me, in telling this story in particular, but in these filmed recreations of our ancestors, in a way, we're giving ourselves this opportunity to see them personified. Uh, because the conditions of the time they lived in and the limitations that were placed upon them, they were not allowed to leave behind pictorial representations of themselves. Um, and so as I was making the show, just the, the the intellectual idea behind that, it was always in the back of my head. But then, like I said, we had all these wonderful people, people who know so much more than I do, uh, people who have made it their life's purpose to preserve the ways and means that my ancestors lived, I would see them helping us give embodiment, personification to these people who lived so that you and I could have this conversation. You know, we think of sacrifice as death, but in this case, this was in some ways a sacrifice of living through, enduring through extreme hardships. And here, here were all these people and every time I would see them, I would realize, you know, this is the privilege that was not bestowed upon them, you know, which is just to simply have their visage, their person um, recorded so that their descendants could actually see them. And yes, I'm telling a story about trains running underground. And I think it's this really big epic about this woman gaining physical possession, regaining physical possession of herself, but also gaining intellectual, emotional, spiritual possession of herself. I have my hand on my heart now. I'm telling that story, but I'm also using these tools, the privilege of being able to record uh, these images. And hopefully I'm filling in this, this cavity or this vacuum, I like to say, of just this pictorial representation of my ancestors who have been in some ways willfully, willfully um, eradicated from the visual historical narrative. Um, and then there's that function of, of, uh, of honoring them. And then also too, really trying to depict what they did. You know, we were talking about yearning before um, and this idea of nurturing and mothering and building these families, you know, uh, despite the fracturing, the willful systemic fracturing of these families. Um, yeah, it was about all that. That's a lot to place onto one story. You know, a story is a powerful device, a powerful house, you know, for many different ideas and feelings. And I'm trying to pack all this shit into this one. And there's loud ass trains running underground. And yet what made it extremely worth it, what made it worth it at all was to be able to look at these people and allow both myself and yourself and anybody who engages the show to see these folks and to see them beyond the condition, you know, of American slavery, uh, I feel or I hope um, to see them expressing themselves and yearning for things and achieving. Barry, thank you so much for the beauty and intention and thoughtfulness and depth of this conversation. Um, and thank you all for listening to Tell Black Stories. We are so excited to go on this journey with Cora on the Underground Railroad and so thankful that uh, your creativity is front and center and that we're able to, to witness your art. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jade. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure.